1911, a German school teacher who lived an austere, thrifty and lonely life began work on a history of all civilizations. His work was driven by what proved to be a true premonition that a world war was to break out and that he was living in a moment of world crisis of historical significance. So ultimately in 1918 Oswald Spengler published his book The Decline of the West and foresaw the death of the West and Western civilization. His book would become one of the most famous and infamous books of the 20th century. Both prediction of Nazism and also often confused with Nazism or the racial prejudices of the Nazis. His work, part prophecy, part history, part lament for lost beauty, distinguished cultures from civilizations. Cultures were young and vital, and for Spengler were represented by, in the case of Western civilization, Western culture was represented by a bark fugue performed in a Gothic cathedral. But cultures grew old and decadent, and then they became civilizations, not a recommendation from Oswald Spengler. The culture of Europe, what we now know as the West, was in the years before World War I in Oswald Spengler's mind in just one such a phase. And ever since the Anglo-Americans have been trying to prove him wrong, resurrect the idea of the West, of Western civilization, as the ultimate and universal civilization, the civilization that would bring an end to history, the civilization that was included in the game, civilization. Do civilizations have a life cycle from cradle to grave? And is Western civilization today on its deathbed? They are the questions for today's Burning Archive. So a somewhat longer opening segment than usual today, but I hope you'll excuse me. Uh, Setting the scene with uh, Oswald Spengler's famous Decline of the West from 1918, because in many ways Oswald Spengler was one of the founders of the study of the history of civilizations uh, and is acknowledged as such in Felipe Fernandez Amesto's magnificent civilizations that I have been using uh, and relying on to produce these last, these four episodes on uh, civilization. What does the meaning of cradle of civilization mean and, and what are the, the big questions that uh, arise from that uh, wonderful question asked of me in Episode 32 of the podcast, this archive is for the players, asked by uh, Isaac Rich along a set of themes of questions about the history uh, as it is um, encountered in computer games and what deeper stories could be told about it. So the game Civilization was, of course, released in 1991. It represents a bit of a polar opposite to Spengler's uh, tale of impending 
destruction and doom in the period of World War One. In 1991, any American was confident that they had won the game of world history, uh, defeated the Soviet Union, and were enjoying untold prosperity, untold uh, wealth and knowledge, freedom, uh, the greatest country, the most powerful country that had ever uh, lived, but not an empire, just a republic, a democracy. And the the optimism, the hope uh, of that era is reflected, I think, in the game, civilization. You know, the wonders of the world, so many of them end up being the wonders of the American 20th century. Whereas Oswald Spengler uh, had a premonition that Europe was about to commit a sort of suicidal war of self-destruction. Uh, and he was right to some degree, uh, and not just in World War One, but then through the ensuing tensions in the 1920s and 1930s and the, the ultimate disasters of World War Two or the Great Patriotic War, to give it a uh, Russian name. Ultimately, I think neither Spengler nor Sid Meier in Civilization, the game, really provides a account of civilization that I guess I'm happy with. Um, and uh, so today what I really want to do is talk a bit about the grand narratives of history, the ideas of history that we use when we speak about civilizations, these huge uh, either processes or cultural entities that rise from cradles and then fall into ruins, death or oblivion in the jungle. And especially I want to talk about one story that has dominated world history and geopolitics over the last hundred years, and that is the fate of Western civilization, or the West, still a term we commonly use in parlance uh, to describe uh, some kind of loosely affiliated uh, entity um, associated with America and true civilization. Indeed, I, I read that quite recently George Soros spoke at the that at the Davos Forum, uh, saying that unless we defeated Vladimir Putin, our into our whatever our means our civilization is at risk and the civilization he's talking about is the civilization of the west and i'm ultimately going to come to a view that we may need to learn as much as we can about the civilizing process from felipe fernandez amesto and admire the great plurality of civilizations that have uh, sprung up in different environments and different periods in history. But we perhaps ought to retire the story of Western civilization, the story of the West, and replace it with a story of the shadow of Tamerlan, the great Turkic Mongol emperor who sought to dominate the world island in uh, around about 1400. We will come to that later. 
But Spengler is interesting because he does very much express a, a certain way of thinking about history of civilizations uh, that has, is still very, very influential and you can hear in the way in which people talk about the rise and fall of civilizations, the rise and fall of empires, the sort of moral decay of empires. He, his book, the, uh, the, the Decline of the West, and he wrote several other kind of books subsequently as well, uh, was one of the most influential books on civilization of all time. It very much was the, the thing to talk about in the 1920s, uh, rather like, I guess, Francis Fukuyama's The End of History was the thing to talk about in the, uh, um, in the 1990s and 2000s. In, in some ways, he defined the field of the study of civilizations and I think it's good to give him credit for, if you like, broadening out the examination of civilizations from a more Christian-influenced story of a single tree of the history of mankind, or humankind. Uh, his book was much misused by the Nazis, but Spengler himself uh, rejected the Nazis, so it's also, I think, important for people to take away any sort of mist, mist of misunderstanding away from him and realise that Spengler uh, was appalled, if you like, by the Nazis. Uh, indeed, shortly before his death, he gave a um, prophecy, a prophecy that in 10 years' time, a German Reich would no longer exist. And in fact, his prophecy proved right. He was a profound pessimist expressed in, for example, his statement that peace is a desire but war is a fact. Uh, and as Max Weber said of him, he was a very ingenious and learned dilettante. His big idea, if you like, was that cultures are organisms and world history was the collective biography of those organisms. His great advance i guess was the fact that he did not see it as this world history as the story of an individual biography or an individual great civilization but the varied biography of those uh, many many organisms each of their own character and their own uh, strengths and weaknesses within his own limitations he was a pluralist really i guess he was quite an admirer and collector of multiple cultures and he wanted to tell a drama of a number of multicultures not just a single linear story of one nation or one christian uh, mankind like any player of the game civilization he was drawn to the big picture of history with a capital h and he came to that past seeking to define the patterns of history, the underlying, the underlying key, if you like, that could explain how events would unfold in the future. But also with something of a prophet's poetic cast of mind, Felipe Fernandez Amesto praises him for his genius of 
picking out figures or metaphors that represented a culture such as the Bach fugue played in the Gothic cathedral representing the very best of Western civilization. Very much a German account of Western civilization, which perhaps we should bear in mind. And for Spengler, the governing metaphor of the history of civilizations was of the the life cycle of an organism. So he wrote, cultures each springing with primitive strength from the soil of a mother region to which it remains firmly bound throughout its whole life cycle, each stamping its material, its mankind in its own image, each having its own idea, its own passions, its own life, will and feeling, and its own death. Fernandez Amesto acknowledges Spengler as a giant of the field, but he very much, as you might imagine, does not have any truck with metaphors of life cycle, parabells of progress, development or diffusion from a cradle of civilization. But it's really the almost instinctive habit we have of imagining imagining histories of cultures, histories of nations, with the same pattern that we have in our own lives of a life cycle, birth, life, death, uh, birth, life, youth, youth, middle age, old age, death, that perhaps constrained the less scholarly and more dilettante uh, Spengler. But in a way, so many historians, not just Spengler and not just Felipe Fernandez Amesto, but so many others have also, particularly historians of like big history, global history, historians of civilizations, long periods of time, have really tried to grapple with this fundamental problem uh, that presented itself to Oswald Spengler and in a different way, in a different era, presented itself to Felipe Fernandez Amesto. In 1911, Oswald Spengler saw a world dominated by Europe, but he also foresaw a Europe that no longer had the cultural vitality, I guess, to sustain that civilization. In around about the year 2000, Felipe Fernandez Amesto saw a world dominated by the idea of globalization and the apparent convergence of many, many parts of the world into a single culture dominated by America, but in which so many different varied pasts and identities were also intertwined. And so this problem, if you like, of uh, this this problem not just of the interpretation of history but of the real facts of history the rise and dominance of the west of the civilizations of the atlantic of north america and western europe and their affiliated countries including far 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 away australia over the world over the last uh, 200 years has been a fundamental question for historians for decades. And it also took a particular form over the last 50 years where globalisation and since 1989, whatever that is, that's 30 years, but 30 odd years, 
but in a way some of the themes of 1989 were already apparent uh, in the 1980s in the earlier 1980s but this theme of globalization and the unipolar moment of western dominance apparently uh, the uh, liberal democratic rules-based order winning the game of history and defining the the form of governance and culture and language for the whole world. So over the last, I don't know, since Spengler, but um, certainly over the last 20 years, there have been many attempts to explain, justify, criticise or foretell the end of the rise of the West or the birth of the modern. Among the people who've contributed to those debates, as well as Felipe Fernandez Mesto, like the American sort of political science scholar Samuel Huntington, a guy called Ian Morris who wrote a book called Why the West Rules for Now, a man called Emmanuel Wallenstein who um, really invented the whole idea of world systems and core 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 powers and peripheral powers. Uh, Neil Ferguson has contributed discussions about the killer apps of the West and which explain the dominance of and the appeal of its way of life. And in a sort of a subtle sort of way, also the uh, British historian Tom Holland in his book Dominion, which kind of turns the whole of history into the outworkings of Protestant Christianity, at least the whole of history since uh, Roman times. Uh, perhaps the most masterful, though, I think, of studies, more contained than uh, Felipe Fernandez Mesta's genius work on civilizations, but um, but just as genius in its um, in its uh, command of so many dimensions is John Darwin's book After Tamerlan, which in many ways wrestles with the problem, this exact problem. How on earth did we end up in this situation where there appears to be the domination of the world by a single power, the unipolar moment, and how and when did uh, the West rise when uh, in 1400 it was nothing like as powerful? And of course all of this sort of discussion folds into studies of geopolitics and international relations. So you'll hear discussion of the West versus the rest or you'll hear discussion of the rise of Chimerica, the sort of melding of uh, the dominant western and the dominant eastern power you'll hear discussion of the multipolar world as a contrast to the west and you'll hear discussion of the emergence of civilizational states whether they are china india russia or uh well I guess America is never described as a civilizational state. It just assumes its own, you know, dominance. And, of course, quite influentially, if controversially also, Samuel Huntington wrote a book, I think, in 1996 called The Clash of Civilizations and... The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of World Order, which was a very crucial book in the 1990s as people tried to wrestle with the different 
unfolding of world history uh, following the collapse of the Soviet Union and concerns about Islamic extremism and all that sort of thing. And Samuel Huntington's book, which I'm going to discuss a bit more later, sort of really talked about clashes of civilizations, one of which is the West. And he indeed drew kind of maps of the world defining uh, nine or ten civilizations somewhat controversially. So they are the kind of grand narratives, I guess, of civilization that inform a lot of the popular discussion of history, I guess, the kind of second-hand accounts of history that you pick up in the media and television and whatnot. Other podcasts, not as well-informed as this one. And, you know, you need to be aware of how they are kind of structured in certain ways and are wrestling with a very deep problem really which is how on earth did these uh, this concept of the west become so dominant and will it come to an end is its end nigh and to try to wrestle with that problem, people have used the concept of civilizations. I mean, they also talk about great power politics or nation states or other sorts of things, uh, world systems. But people uh, do use the concepts of civilizations to make sense of global history, partly to invent, you know, I guess a character of a civilization which can be a, a strong generalisation that represents the broadest, most enduring cultural entity that we experience, a kind of a family resemblance across uh, many different periods and, and many different individuals, but something that has some sort of essential unity and to form meaningful stories for people about how we got to where we are. But viewing civilizations as a process, as Fernandez Amesto and myself recommend, tends to change the narrative of history. It means we are a little bit sceptical about viewing civilizations as something that clash, as, as these cultural entities that clash, but rather... Uh, civilization is a process that is going on all around us and and is not necessarily uh, a battle standard by which people combat each other in geopolitics. Viewing civilizations as a process also tends to give us a little bit more of an ironic detachment from rise and fall stories. And I think it's probably this that we need to do a little bit with the idea of the West or the Western civilization, And I think especially it's important to detach a little bit and think critically, I guess, about some of those concepts as we hear so much talk now of civilizational conflict between Russia, China, Islam and the West. Or to talk of autocracy versus democracy in a way is a similar kind of a thing. It, it casts in a civilizational, global sort of terms, conflicts that are rather more complicated and not necessarily between the cultures as such, the peoples as such, so much as conflicts between the interests and the great states of the different parts of the world. Nonetheless, it is 
helpful perhaps to think about how people do use the term civilizations in this sense of, you know, I guess clash of civilizations or the ultimate, ultimate narrative unit in, in history, in world history. Uh, Samuel Huntington's summary of the scholarship on civilization really makes these points about the enormous, enormous literature that has crossed, you know, archaeology and history, art and cultural studies. Huntington really says there is there are plural civilizations rather than a single civilization. He very much defended the idea that there are plural civilizations like Fernandez Amesto. But he also put the view that civilization is a form of cultural entity. He emphasized it's a cultural entity though, uh, not a it's not a nation, it's not an ethnic identity, it's a cultural entity. And it is the most comprehensive cultural, the broadest cultural entity that there is. We might owe our allegiance to our city, our football club, or our uh, literary traditions. But beyond that, we feel we belong to Islam, to orthodoxy, to the West, as as um, as uh, Samuel Huntington would say, and he also says that uh, civilizations are mortal but very long lived. They evolve, adapt, and are the most enduring of human associations. But they are cultural, not political entities, and they do not do what governments do. Uh, and Essentially, Samuel Huntington sort of really defines civilizations in kind of religious terms or in eccentric religious terms. He talked about the orthodox civilization based around Russia, but then he talked about the West, which would seem to include both Protestant and Catholic. And some of the troubles that uh, Samuel Huntington really had were that uh, although in a way, he wanted to re. He he, he was. Um, I mean, his prediction was the world was becoming more modern and less Western, more modern in uh, ways that related to the civilizational identity of the different parts of the world. He did rather trip over this problem that Fernandez Mesto spoke about of treating civilizations as actors on the world stage rather than treating civilization as a process. He essentially identified civilizations as categories, the sort of ingredient list problem that Fernandez Fernandez Mesto criticized, and it led to some very odd boundaries around, you know, what's Sinic and what's Japanese and what's Buddhist and what's what's Orthodox and what's Europe? Is, is, does Europe have its own separate civilization that's different to American civilization? And so on and so forth. And Felipe Fernandez Amesto, in his book, Histories of Civilization, I think insists over and over again that the history of civilizations is ultimately without pattern. It ultimately does not conform to any grand narrative story. To try to fit it into a rise and fall, a cradle, cradle, maturity and death narrative is ultimately hopeless. But he does see underlying processes and he does see patterns uh, emerging from those but those patterns are sort of complex and 
driven by processes and they they lead to multiple uh, identities rather than these single cohesive uh, identities of single civilizations. He resists turning turning the story of civilization into a rise and fall story or a story of being determined by the environment, by geography. Some people, uh, like Jared Diamond, for example, say that the the basic the 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 uh, fate of world history was really determined by the the geography or the physical science of the Eurasian continent and its particular endowment of resources and climate and whatnot over a certain uh, narrow narrow geographical band. Fernandez Amisto really sees civilization as something that can occur in any environment, but that environments do not determine the form and the character of civilization. The itch to civilize, to civilize makes use of ideas and the and imagination, and it's the, the ideas and the human imagination ultimately take civilizations in all sorts of wonderfully different and plural forms. Ultimately, I guess, if you like, the contrast between all the different sort of thinkers that one can choose to guide one through a civilization. I ultimately go for historians like Fernandez Amesto or John Darwin and others who tell well-told stories, but stories that uh, do not fit into any conventional pattern of rise and falls of these uh, cardboard cutout characters called uh, the West and the rest. But let's have a little look now at the whole story of the rise and decline of the West, because the rise and decline of the West is a very sticky idea in global history. And as I said before, it responds to those uh, problems of of uh, dominance and globalization and it can be expressed in a very triumphalist way uh, and a lot of rhetoric out of you know america and liberal rules-based order and uh, all that sort of thing reflects that triumphalist story but it can also be told in the gloomy uh, way of uh, you know we're all doomed that oswald spengler perhaps was the most famous uh, early proponent of and we hear the this story about West uh, constantly appearing still in in contemporary politics, in contemporary geopolitics. Whether that is like a story of of um, domination by clo- colonialism and resistance of colonialism, uh, sort of subaltern sort of histories, or whether that is in the uh, rhetoric of Russian diplomats who talk about the collective West and and Chinese, Russian, Indian leaders speaking of the importance of their cultural values and the need to provide space in the international order for those values rather than just assume the dominance of the liberal rules-based order of the West. So despite all the weaknesses of the idea, the idea of Western civilization or a war clash of civilizations around the Western model is very, very sticky. So it's worth understanding the overall, I guess, storyline of this story of the rise of the West. 
And for that, let me turn to Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations. So Huntington's sort of summary account in uh, The Clash of Civilizations may be, t- may be taken as a sort of a primer to this general story of Western civilization, the rise of the West, which in some uh, form or other, we uh, in Australia and uh, other um, liberal democratic countries have really absorbed pretty uh, intensively through our, our years in television, in movies and TV shows and you know, school histories and all the rest of it. So the story goes that European Christendom sort of began to emerge as a distinct civilization in the 8th and 9th centuries when up until then it had really sort of lagged behind letting aside the whole story of Byzantium and that sort of thing but nonetheless the there starts to be a reawakening of a concept of the west which with some heritage from Rome in the 8th to 9th centuries and then between the 11th and 13th centuries European culture began to develop facilitated by the use of both some elements of Islam and Byzantium, particularly those that express the classical heritage of Greece and Rome. And there was the growing schism between the Catholic West and the Orthodox East of Europe, or indeed of of African and Middle Eastern type Christianity. Uh, and then ultimately there's a bit of a struggle and a, a growth of uh, independence of towns and from uh, the church and the state from the church and in around about 1500 the renaissance of European culture was underway and social pluralism expanding commerce and technological achievement provided the basis for a new era in global politics. The European West projected itself out and conquered the Americas and then over the next 250 years all the Western Hemisphere and significant portions of Asia were brought under European rule or domination. In the 18th century the United States and most of Latin America break apart from European rule but in the 19th century they are sort of reintegrated with a broader Western idea uh, and Western European imperialism projects itself into Africa, expressed most powerfully in the vast British Empire on which, of course, the sun never sat. Ultimately, rival civilizations are either eliminated or subjugated or profoundly subordinated to Western influence. According to Huntington, only Russian, Japanese and Ethiopian civilizations, or governed by highly centralised imperial authorities, were able to resist the onslaught of the West and maintain meaningful independent existence. For 400 years, inter-civilizational relations consisted of the subordination of other societies to Western civilization. And of course, the uh, World War II is the great European catastrophe after which the uh, European, the the empire, the colonial empires of the European powers falls apart, 
and America becomes the keystone of the uh, liberal economic, uh, of the liberal world order, opposed to those uh, damn Russians yet again. So that's, I guess, broadly the story of the Western civilization and many, many people, and Neil Ferguson perhaps is a good popular example, have tried to find in that story something quintessentially, a quintessential explanation somehow that it would explain the dominance, um, explain the dominance of the Western powers, whether it's their ideas or their technology or their unique endowment of resource assets or or uh, something else. And I think as we've seen, Fernandez Mesto, for example, says some of it is just chance and uh, who managed to control the trade winds first. And in some ways, uh, the success of the West in defeating the Soviet Union th- that led to the unipolar moment encouraged thinking about the West as it, 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 if that was a bad habit in Western colonialism. It became a shockingly bad habit after 1989 amongst Americans in thinking about Western civilization as a u- as a universal civilization somehow exceptional, somehow immortal, somehow representing uh, the end of history. Of course, Francis Fukuyama's The End of History is of this era and of that mode of thinking. Um, the, the ideas and the culture of the West were the final and the best solution to problems of politics and social order. Uh, and Samuel Huntington's book, Clash of Civilization, was in fact something of a criticism of these views. It was really sort of saying, for God's sake, guys, you've got to draw back a little bit here and um, have a bit of strategic empathy with other civilizations. But it was widespread and it reflected itself in all sorts of different, somewhat buried versions of the idea. So the Indian Jamaican kind of scholar, B.S. Nepal, I'm not sure whether exactly what his heritage is, but he's certainly, I think, got some Indian heritage. V.S. Nepal uh, spoke about the dream of a global civilization or a universal civilization. Uh, the whole idea of a liberal rules-based order or a new world order that George Bush or George Bush Sr. Uh, spoke of uh, reflected the same kind of thing. Everyone wanted to be like the West and America, and it seemed that maybe the ideas expressed in the game civilization that there was an optimal path to follow down the technology tree and through the exploitation of resources and through the cultivation of a certain type of culture uh, that path would lead to a happy marriage between military domination, cultural domination, economic domination and political domination. And Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations was, I guess, a way of trying to reintroduce some modesty in thinking about these cultures uh, to the, 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 the newly uh, or um, perhaps falsely, or, or the hubris of the new American elite who felt that they had won the world game of history. But a more careful reading of uh, Samuel Huntington's work really sees it as 
in a way, a sort of a, uh, an attempt to re-energise the sort of constructive liberal democratic culture of America in the 1950s that was kind of falling away in this champagne-popping uh, hubris and overconfidence of the 1990s in in America, the, the era of Bill Clinton and and people who political advisers saying that now America was so dominant it could create its own reality. Uh, so he actually wrote that the greatest threat really to world peace was the, the over assertiveness of Western universal beliefs in its own values. He says, in the emerging world of ethnic conflict and civilizational clash, Western belief in the universality of Western culture suffers three problems. It is false, it is immoral, and it is dangerous. And it is dangerous partly because it could lead to a major inter-civilizational war between core states dangerous to the West because it could lead to the defeat of the West. And here Samuel Huntington was very Huntington was very much influenced by the concepts of, I guess, Spengler's ideas of, you know, birth, life, death. All civilizations go through similar processes of emergence, rise and decline. Uh, but I think the American fifties romantic of Samuel Huntington believed that perhaps the West was an exceptional civilization, one that could ha- had a unique blend of ideas of individual liberty, democracy, rule of law, human rights, and cultural freedom. So, although he was very aware of the dangers of thinking of this of of uh, an overly assertive West talking about its universal values, he nonetheless tended to ultimately have a sentimental attachment to an older America that he felt represented a the indispensable nation and that uh, was losing its sense of cultural cohesiveness and moral core. Uh, and his book was in some ways an attempt to restate the value of that moral core so that the, 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 the dominant world power could act with more grace in the world and so not mess things up. Uh, sadly, I guess, America did not take Samuel Huntington's advice. And like many um, you know, big books in, in world history, his, his work was probably also uh, sadly misunderstood. Concepts of modernization and social development, all these sorts of things, these are all uh, similar ways of talking about the rise rise and fall of civilizations as an organic or natural system. I think as well as looking at Fernandez Amesto's book though, there is one other uh, great book uh, by British historian John Darwin called After Tamerlan, uh, The Rise and Fall of Global Empires 1400-2000, that wrestles with these same problems but ultimately does not make the mistake of viewing 
great states as civilizational entities linked to religion and bound up in a cohesive uh, life story in the way that Samuel Huntington, before his subtlety, ended up doing. John Darwin's book, After Tamerlan, really responds to three big themes. And it's these themes that uh, we've been talking about as the ones that people have have uh, wrestled with in trying to understand the rise of the West and what is what is the civilizational impact or the civilizational uh, secret source of the West is the big three themes were the globalization which when Darwin wrote it or published it in 2007 had been talked about you know for a long time uh, and and quite intensively. Uh, but also the dominance of Europe and later the West. But then John Darwin had a different theme, more perhaps echoing Fernandez uh, Amesto's work, which less pessimistic about, or, or, or less uh, assumed less about the extent of Western control of of uh, other other cultures than the the traditional accounts of the rise of the West because he really emphasised the resilience of states, of the states of Eurasia for a very long time and he gave a proper account of the role of that extraordinary state, that uh, multi-ethnic empire, uh, Russia, in his account. But similarly, the states based around what we'd call Iran and China were surprisingly dominant and indeed Japan was also strong enough to be itself an imperial power in the early 20th century. So if I read from towards the end of John Darwin's book, he says, At the start of this book it was argued that the shape of today's world cannot be explained away as the product of a global economy and its political and cultural side effects behind the variations of wealth and power, the divergence of institutions and values and the differences in cultural and religious attachment that are still so visible in the 21st century world lies a much more complex history of competitive empire, state and culture building. So rather than a story of civilizations, he's talking about at least three layers of competing institutions, their empires, states and cultures, and variations on many different factors as well, like institutions, values, cultural, religious attachment. While he says this story is often portrayed as the brutal saga of predatory imperialism, the West. The West's invasion as the hap- hapless. Oh, so he he contrasts two competing false views. That um, one is that the story is a saga of predatory imperialism, the West's invasion of the hapless non-West, and the other is the history of the world is the long march to. Mi- modernity with the West as a guide and using its template. Neither one is true and that is I guess the ultimate summary of what we've been talking about in this episode. There is no neat chronology of imperial rise and fall, no 
neat geography of European mastery over the rest of Eurasia. Nor indeed did the empire, in quote marks, of the West come to the end in the bonfire of colonial ballot vanities that we call decolonization. There are three big themes in his work and they are really about the complex, complex imperial histories and the fact that there were these things called empires, uh, including that of the American empire. And secondly, a pattern of persistence that there were surprisingly strong resistance to Europeans' domination of Asia in Manchuria, Mongolia, Xinjiang and in Tibet and other, other places. And that this was cultural as well. Religion, language, literature uh, and uh, sort of non-state loyalties. So when... Oswald Spengler was talking about the decline of the West in 1911. The West's cultural impact might seem to have been at an all-time high, but it was also facing well-organised resistance from many areas. For example, Gandhi, Tolstoy, uh, the emerging sort of uh, Islamist movement uh, various places and of course uh, the sort of growing sort of nationalism in, in China. His third grand theme is around convergence and this is the convergence that ultimately ends in the extraordinary unipolar moment after World War, uh, after the end of the Cold War. And this is what John Darwin has to say about that. Remembering he wrote his work about, uh, I guess, 15 years ago. The economic regime to which we have grown used in the last decade and a half represents an extraordinary moment in the turbulent history of the global economy. It was produced by an earthquake as dramatic as anything in the world's modern history. It required the combination of geopolitical change the sudden collapse of Soviet power and China's decision to embrace a market economy and a technological revolution in communications and transport. Port. The turn to the market in the People's Republic and the former Soviet bloc brought a massive enlargement of productive capacity and an enormous new market. It coincided with the growth of much cheaper air travel, the container revolution, and above all, the commercial application of internet technology. Hard on the heels of the financial liberalisation of the 1980s that brought much greater freedom for financial services and capital transfers between Western countries, the conditions were met for a phase of exceptional growth in the volume of trade and an intense integration of economic activities on a global scale far beyond the limited promise of the pre-1914 world. The great divergence in wealth and economic performance between the Euro-Atlantic West and most of the rest of Eurasia has given way instead to the great convergence, which should, if it continues, restore the balance to the rough equilibrium of half a millennium ago in the next 50 years. That is... Uh, if you like, the end of the West. But all of this 
uh, has been underpinned by the building of empires, states and cultures with distinctive values, attitudes, institutions and ideologies. It can't all go into a great big globalisation. So, just like Oswald Spengler in 1911, John Darwin... um, evokes a sense that we are on a brink of a great transformation, but perhaps he does not get as carried away with prophecy as uh, Oswald Spengler, because he notes that this great transformation has been occurring through these complex processes, not just of civilizations clashing, but of empires, states, cultures, values, attitudes, institutions, ideologies, social structures, I guess. Um, uh, for a long time. The history of Asia, he says, suggests that while new methods of warfare and government, new techniques of production, new cultural practices and new religious beliefs were diffused from one end of the old world to the other and from every direction, they failed to induce a common view of modernity, of or of what it was to be modern. The past patterns of trade and conquest, diaspora and migration that have pushed and pulled distant regions together and shaped their cultures and politics have been exceptionally complex. Their effect has been not to homogenise the world, but to keep it diverse, I might add multipolar perhaps in uh, brackets by contrast the magnetic force of the global economy or in brackets liberal rules-based order has been too erratic thus far and too unevenly felt to impose the cooperative behavior and cultural fusion to which theorists of free trade have often looked forward What we call globalisation today might be candidly seen as flowing from a set of recent agreements, some tacit, some formal, between the four great economic empires of America, of the contemporary world, America, Europe, Japan and China. For them and for all other states and societies, the challenge will be to reconcile their internal cohesion with the disturbing effects of free competition. The strain will be great, the outcome uncertain. But if there is one continuity that we should be able to glean from a long view of the past, it is Eurasia's resistance to a uniform system, a single great ruler, or one set of rules. In that sense, we still live in Tamerlan's shadow, or perhaps more precisely, in the shadow of his failure. And that, I think, is perhaps the more compelling account of world history that ultimately, I think, supports the view that we must learn to live in a multipolar, multicultural, fragmented and complex and ever-changing kaleidoscopic world not in a world uh, of netflix and uh, international rules-based order 
Uh, there is an old adage that history is written by the victors. I don't think you can really read After Tamland or Fernando's Amesto or many other uh, modern day historians, even older historians, and really believe this is so. There is as much knowledge and sympathy for the losers of history as the winners of history in these accounts. And Walter Benjamin's old thesis on history comes to mind. That is, there is no monument of history that is also, uh, of civilization that is also not a monument of barbarism. One of Benjamin's uh, theses on the philosophy of history reads, a clay painting, a poor clay painting named Angelus Novus shows an angel uh, looking as though he is about to move away from something he is fixedly contemplating. His eyes are staring, his mouth is open, his wings are spread. This is how one pictures the angel of history. His face is turned towards the past where we perceive a chain of events. He sees one single catastrophe which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage and hurls it in front of his feet. The angel would like to stay, awaken the dead and make whole that what has been smashed. But a storm is blowing from paradise. It has got caught in his wings with such violence that the angel can no longer close them. The storm irresistibly propels him into the future to which his back is turned, while the pile of debris before him grows skyward. This storm is what we call progress. The best history, I think, is written with this irony, this love of fate, this sadness or sense of the inevitable tragic loss that occurs in history. Not epic, triumphalist, heroic marches of freedom, progress or the rise of the West. And the end of Fernandez Amesto's book also evokes a similar spirit towards history, seeing it perhaps as a small walled garden in which you can find some relief from the rancor and mishaps of the world's events. I, in bringing this four-part epic series on civilizations uh, to a close, let me quote the final sentence from Felipe, two sentences from Felipe Fernandez Mesto's great book on civilizations. After all the disillusionments with which the history of civilizations is studded, the triumphs of savagery, the bloodlettings of barbarism, the reversals of progress, the reconquests by nature, our failure to improve, there is no remedy except to go on trying and keeping civilised traditions alive, even on the beach and in the shingle. Il faut cultiver notre jardin. It is necessary to tend one's garden. Tending one's garden is to return to the root of processual change, the itch to civilise the small space uh, I occupy and fill it with the beauty or the best that has been thought and imagined. 
and drawing in my own unique way on all that survives of that. I hope you've enjoyed this long response to Isaac Rich's uh, wonderful question about what is a cradle of civilization. I don't think Isaac quite expected a four-hour-plus marathon on that single question, but I hope you've also enjoyed the whole series responding to uh, Isaac's Rich's wonderful set of questions on games as a window onto history and i hope you'll join me uh next time when i will be making a bit of a transition from civilizations to another topic but having a bit of a a look back at samuel huntington's clash of civilizations and returning to some discussion of the current russia ukraine war now that we're no longer in an election period in Australia and when perhaps some of the heat has come out of the discussion of the topic and looking at the clash of civilizations revisited and the surprisingly foresightful commentary that Samuel Huntington had on Ukraine in his 1996 book. Okay, everyone, I hope you've enjoyed this long episode at the end of a long uh, stretch on histories of civilizations, and I hope it's given you some thoughts and ideas for things to follow up and read and uh, be inspired by just the extraordinary uh, examples of past human lives as well as the encounters of different historians who have tried to make sense of them because as we say at the burning archive podcast the past is not dead the past is not even past and it's for that reason that one should always try to make sure that what one lovest well is not reft will not be reft from there by now 